Antarctica is a continent defined by its weather. This is a landscape shaped by snow, ice and wind. What is not immediately apparent is weather varies wildly across the continent. Altitude varies from 4,000 metres near the centre to sea level at its fringes. Latitude varies also from the relatively northern island of South Georgia and the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula to the pole itself. For human endeavour in Antarctica, understanding the weather is key. Sailors speak in hushed tones of the winds surrounding the continent. The roaring forties, the furious fifties and the screaming sixties. I spoke to the team of meteorologists and forecasters based at Rothera on the Antarctic Peninsula to learn more about the work they do and the science that lies behind it. How many weather forecasters and meteorologists uh, are working in Rothera at the moment? There are currently two, but there will be three across the whole season. And what, in the main, is the job of, for example, the forecasters? Our main purpose of being here is to support aviation. So we're only here during the summer while the planes are down. Um, we are all aviation forecasters back home. So it's very specific to planes. Um, we do sort of other stuff on the side whilst we're here, the, the more public weather forecasts and the boating forecasts and things like that. But our mainstay is um, for the plane. So there's a lot more to that than meets the eye. I know a lot of people when they um, hear that you're a forecaster, they assume you're just forecasting whether it's going to be snowing or cloudy or windy or something like that. But there's actually... Um, particularly with aviation, there's loads of stuff that I didn't have no clue about before I first started this job. Like cloud amounts is important. Cloud base down to the nearest hundred feet is important. What type of cloud it is, whether there's going to be turbulence, what the visibility is down to the next, down to the nearest hundred meters, um, what the wind is in like the nearest ten degrees or the nearest five knots. It gets really, really specific. And uh, yeah, icing and cloud and all sorts of interesting stuff. It's far more interesting, I find, than um, just the general public weather stuff. So talk me through the process. You wake up quite early and how do you go about constructing a weather forecast for that day for, mm -hmm. for flying? So in the college, they often talk about the forecast funnel, which is um, what, of course, we all use on a day to day basis. Um, I sound sarcastic, but it's actually true. <laughs> um so a lot of it is just looking at the general picture. So synoptically, we would refer to that. So you know the charts that you get with the isobars on, um, yeah. so where the a, fronts a are. Chart, essentially. Look at a pressure chart and then we would try and decide based on the air, the air masses that we can see, where there's going to be precipitation and everything, decide where the fronts are. And that can give you a very broad idea of what the weather's going to be doing that day. Um, it's mainly based on wind direction a lot of the time. It's a really, really subtle um a southerly wind is generally bad here, tends to bring a lot of low cloud. Easterly wind is a very horrible crosswind direction. There's lots of nuances to each wind direction. So, yeah, when I first come in, um, the one unusual part of this job um, and the challenge is the fact that we have limited bandwidth. So normally back at home, you can flick through loads of model output. And by that, I mean fields that show you what the precipitation is doing all day or fields that show you what the low cloud is doing or what the wind gusts are doing whatever like that 
you can flick through it really, really quickly. But here, because the internet is so slow, you have to click on one frame, wait for that to load, snip it, put it into a PowerPoint, click on the next frame, wait for that to load, snip it and put it in a PowerPoint so that you can actually scroll through all of the frames. Right. Um on a PowerPoint, rather than if you were to try and scroll through it directly on the internet, it would take too long, and it you wouldn't would, see the trends. Yeah, yeah, you you would be sat there waiting for each frame to load, and by each frame, I'm talking three hourlies. But you need to see these in quick succession so you can yeah. see how things are moving. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's very so that's a bit of a pain to have to do that, but it's just one of the things you have to do down here because it's quite limited. Another thing that we have down here is satellite imagery. That is a one of the biggest. Um, useful things that we have down here um we have amazing satellite imagery down here actually because there are there are two main types of satellite imagery that we use one of them is a geostationary satellite which is stationary relevant to a point on the equator so let's say a, a point over africa um a, sta- a satellite will be stationary there and as the earth rotates the satellite rotates with it so it gives you the same bit of earth steadily but the downside of that is because it's right over the equator it's incredibly warped at the poles so we can't use that down here we can't use geostationary satellites the other one and the main one that we use down here is um polar orbiters which are ones that circle the globe and they cross at the poles so they will they're really useful here because they cross we're obviously right next to the poles so they cross us quite a lot for somewhere on the equator they might only cross cross once a day so you get the different satellites for different areas of the world. So the satellite imagery that we have is of very, very high quality. But the only downside is we only get passes on the satellites for the first half of the day. And then after about midday, we fall into a big black hole of satellite imagery where we don't get anything until about 7pm. <laughs> so when everyone's out flying, we're trying to figure out where the low cloud is going. Yeah, we don't have any satellite imagery to figure out what is going on with that. In the morning... It's all good, but yeah, afternoon it's a bit of a challenge. And all it would take maybe is one or two more satellites. Yeah. More orbiting satellites that came across at maybe 2pm, 4pm. Yeah, that would at least give you something. So yeah, we uh, have to get all of those satellite, download all of that satellite data, download all the model data, um, and then gradually just look at all of the different fields that you have. So there are so many different factors that go into a forecast. The temperature the humidity where the air has come from what the wind speed is what is that going to do to the cloud base if the wind's too strong it's going to lift up the cloud base if it's snowing it's going to bring the visibility down but if it's really windy that's going to cause blowing snow and bring the visibility down even further so it's like a big recipe of all these different things and you have to pick and choose as to what ingredients you're going to have during that day and what that's going to come out with so yeah it's gradually Figuring out what's going on, for starters, and then actually putting it into a format that people can use. Why do we have forecasters in person in Antarctica? Would it not be as easy to have forecasters such as yourself in Mm. the UK? And you can look at the data online and you can look at maybe a webcam for Rothera. What's the advantage in having you physically here? That's a very good question, but it is... And obviously Bass see the importance of it since they have three of us here every season it is so important to actually be in a place to forecast to to be in the place that you're forecasting for back home i also do forecasting for 
sometimes the place that I'm in and sometimes the place that is a remote location that I am not in. If you're actually there, you get such a better feel for the weather, what's actually going on. There's only so much you can get from an observation rather than actually just looking out of the window and getting a bit, getting a bit of a sense of it. So from a forecasting perspective, actually being able to see it happen, you're connected with it so much more rather than just hearing about it or seeing it in a code. It's like if you read about something on the news, it doesn't really it doesn't really affect you as much as if you're actually there and seeing it. But it's that kind of physical presence of being there. So that side of thing for the forecasting. And one of the main things about being here is actually having a connection with the people that you're forecasting for to be able to do a good job. Because whilst we're forecasters, essentially we're also consultants, we're advisors. We're suggesting windows or, or saying... I think this forecast is uh, really poor for this day, really good for this day. If you know what that means, if you know that that means the guys at Sky Blue are finally going to be able to get out of there after being trapped there for so many days and you have a, a sense of connection with the missions they're trying to accomplish, then it's just you do a better job because you're more involved in it. Um, and the people here value that a lot. Um, I know there are some forecasters there are some forecasting jobs where it's remote and the people just don't receive as good a service because they just they they aren't as involved they they don't really know what's going on and they you'd you'd forecast the same probably but yeah you, there's just something really to be said for being more involved in that process and actually being there with everyone and they they obviously value it as well because being a co-pilot is a thing that we get to do down here. Hopefully you'll get to do that at some stage. I'm down to do one tomorrow. Um, That's exciting. So you're going as co-pilot on a plane. Mm. So we have two types of plane here, the Twin Otter and the Dash 7. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to go up in a Twin Otter tomorrow. So there's one captain and then they technically have to fly with a co-pilot. They don't have to be a qualified pilot. It's basically just someone who a sits second, in... Who a sits second in, person. Exactly, a second person. And whilst it's a safety thing, it's also a fantastic recreation opportunity for everyone on base to be able to go on a co-pilot trip. They prioritise having the forecasters on first because when you actually go and see the place that you're forecasting for, you get such a better sense of what the weather's going to actually do there. You, you can see something on a map and see the contours and see the orography, see where the nunatuks are and get an idea of, OK, well... For example, a, a southeasterly wind at sky blue is going to bring up loads of low cloud from the Ronnie Ice Shelf, which is something that I know in theory. But when you're actually, you've seen it and you just know, you've seen it from the air and you, you visualised all of that, you get a much better sense of it. Forecasting, whilst it's about theory and experience, a lot of it is, well, it is mainly experience. Things that you've seen before, um, yeah, things that you know are possible rather than just going off the theory and the model. The The best forecasters out there can barely look at like all of the crazy model products, probably. <laughs> the ones who really have an innate sense of what's what's going to happen and who have been at a site for so many years and they're like, ah, this wind direction. I know what's going to happen now. <laughs> that's very interesting. There's obviously a lot more to it than meets the eye then if that sort of instinct is so important. Yes, and uh, obviously all the model products are fantastic and they're getting better all the time. 
Um, they've even improved to a really big extent just in my time in the office, and I've only been forecasting for about six years. So they are definitely getting better, but you cannot put enough weight on the value of experience and the importance of looking out the window and actually going off what is actually there and not getting your head too much involved in the model. Because there's a there's model world and then there's the actual world. And they're not quite the same. <laughs> and the, yeah, obviously the main issue in forecasting is when those two do not tie up. <laughs> and you're trying to figure out what's happening when the model is suggesting one thing and it is doing something completely different in reality. So where are you going on your co-pilot flight tomorrow? Hopefully um, through Fossil Bluff and then on to Sky Blue. So what are Fossil Bluff and Sky Blue? So, um, well, we're currently sat in Rothera, which is on the just off Adelaide Island, off the western tip of the peninsula. Fossil Bluff is off another island that's just off the western side of the peninsula, but it's a bit further down to the south. Um, it is sat in a sound um, that's full of sea ice um, at the moment. One thing that's an issue there in the summer is that um, melt pools can form on that sea ice which provides a source of moisture for mist and fog to form. So mist and fog becomes a lot more of an issue at Fossil Bluff later on in the summer months. Sky Blue is actually on the peninsula itself. It's quite high up. It's around 5,000 feet or so. Um, And it is a notoriously difficult place to forecast for. (laughs) Did you do the forecast for tomorrow? Or was that one of your colleagues? I have done the forecast for tomorrow, but the way that we work it here... um, is that we basically hand over in the middle of the day. So one person does the morning, one person does the afternoon, and then it flips over day by day, generally. And then we'll try and give each other a Sunday off. But So what the good thing about that is that you get a second pair of eyes on something. If you're looking at something and you're really not quite sure how it's going to go, and you've just it's like with anything, you look at it for too long and you're just like, I don't know if I've gone into some sort of hole of confusion here and really led myself down the wrong path and I need someone else to just do a sense check for me (laughs) so we get to do that with each other so I did the forecast for tomorrow and then Kat will have looked at it again this afternoon and given it a tweak based on her own thoughts and also updated models so we get new model runs twice a day behind circumpolar winds. Uh, Can you explain the mechanism behind them? Well, of course, in Antarctica, we're a landmass surrounded by sea. And that's a really important factor when we look at how the winds are around Antarctica. You think about what drives the forces around us. We have this air sinking off of the Antarctic plateau, driving down towards the coast. And you end up with these areas of low pressure developing around the coast. And then these spiral around the continent. It's great to watch. If you see an animation of these pressure cells just moving round and round, and they generate these really strong westerlies. And because we have an area of pretty much uninterrupted ocean, they can really build up some strength as well. And hopefully driven by that... uh, polar jet as well really pushes through and it's a great thing to watch out for particularly if you're forecasting for places like uh, southern Chile or even across towards Australia or even down towards New Zealand. While these present a challenge in the shape of rough seas they also present an opportunity. The clipper route between Europe and the Far East to New Zealand and Australia took advantage of these winds for trade. This fell into disuse only following the rise of marine steam engines and the opening of the Suez and Panama canals. Today 
round-the-world record attempts and races take advantage of these reliable, strong westerlies, much as their trading forebears did hundreds of years ago. Why don't we see similar winds at the North Pole? Well, the North Pole is a little bit of a different story. So while we've got an area of land surrounded by sea in the South Pole and the, and the Antarctic, in the North we've got an area of ice and open ocean surrounded by land. And so you don't get that same area of uh, strong westerlies. You don't get that uninterrupted flow of lows. And you don't tend to get the, the stronger winds being pushed in from the central plateaus. But what you do get is you still get those uh, westerly feed of air. So you still tend to get that jet forming through there. But with the air and the wind moving over things like uh, land, there's much more friction involved. So you tend to get things slowing down just a touch more as well. Further south than 60 degrees, however, winds are larger than catabatic. These can reach speeds of up to 320 kilometres per hour. So catabatic winds are those strong winds that, that drive down off of, the coast, off of the continent and they can help to form areas of low pressure around the continent. So these catabatic winds are, are pretty much masses of cold air running down the, the topography of Antarctica, being channelled through those uh, glaciers and down through the valleys and uh, really lead to some pretty strong and pretty intense areas of, uh, of strong winds. How does weather in Antarctica differ from weather elsewhere on the planet? Obviously it's colder, obviously from what you've said it's windy. What else is different and unique about it? So there are a few things that we get here which we don't see anywhere else. We see some fantastic optical phenomena, so things like uh, halos and uh, corona. We do see those in some of the parts of the world, but these are really fantastic ones. And we also think, see things during the winter, such as polar stratospheric clouds. Now these are clouds that are way up in the atmosphere and uh, not made of uh, ice crystals but of different chemicals and they're a really interesting thing to see and they're a thing that you see really only at the higher higher latitudes uh, like us or up in the northern hemisphere as well and they're a bit of an indicator of, of different things going on in the atmosphere you need really cold temperatures aloft for that but back down towards the surface it's even common in the garden things that you take for granted in the real world things like like thunderstorms we just don't get the depth of convection you need to see those clouds build up and bubble away and so we can get a bit of convective weather in the uh, in the summer when the temperatures start to pick up, but we just don't get the same height of cloud which you need to get that separation of charged particles to see the lightning form. The image of a weather balloon being released is instantly recognisable. How the information from that balloon is collected and processed is less commonly known. When we think about the weather, we're very used to seeing pictures in the newspaper and on TV of just pretty much a two-dimensional weather with surface pressure and areas of rain and those kind of things. But we actually have to think about the weather as more of a, a three-dimensional thing. And that's what the weather balloons are for. They are these helium balloons that we attach a radio sonde. And that's a, a device which has a, a temperature measurer and a humidity device. And it also measures the pressure as well. And so we send that up into the atmosphere and attach to that as well is a GPS device and if we follow where the balloon is we can work out how strong the winds are and which direction they're blowing as well and so we end up with this profile up through the atmosphere of uh, of how the weather is changing so how the winds are changing how cold it is and uh, just things like that and where these areas of uh, high humidity are and things like areas of cloud it's really a useful tool for the forecasters. But how high does this balloon get to in the end? So for us down here in Antarctica, we're looking at around about 27, 28 kilometres up. So really very high up. And so we send it off at the same time as everyone else in the globe to try and make sure that we measure the same atmosphere at the, the same time. We launch our weather balloons around about 8 o'clock in the morning. And that so it arrives at about 100 hectopascals, so around about 15 kilometres up, around about uh, 9 local, which is 12 Zulu, which is about midday in terms of... Uh, the GMT and that's the way we uh, 
it works across the globe. So we all try and launch our balloons so that they reach this 100 hectopascal level around about 12 Zulu. So from us here in Antarctica, from everyone in the UK, from the States down towards New Zealand, we all launch our balloons with that same goal in mind. So how many balloons are launched at midday GMT every day? I mean, is this 10,000 balloons worldwide? Oh, it's a very good question. So probably not 10,000, probably at the most perhaps a thousand across the world, but more like to be in the hundreds. For us in Antarctica, though, there's not many sites, which means that everything we do here is worth just a little bit more because there's not many observations that we make down here. So those weather balloons that we do, we do one of those every weekday, Monday to Friday. They're just worth that a little bit more because there's just us down here around the coast and we send those weather balloons up and get that information back to our friends up north. Does that mean that the models, the computer models for weather in Antarctica are less accurate than uh, models elsewhere? It's a really tricky thing to work out how um, how we can model the weather around the poles. And there's lots of things that go into that. And one of the things that makes it tricky is the number of observations that we have. If you think about how many observations are made across uh, the UK and across Europe, there's hundreds of these things that get sent through every hour. Whereas for us down here, there's a handful of observations that get sent through. And so it makes it harder to ground check your forecasts and to get those initial conditions. And it's just another one of those challenges of forecasting the weather in Antarctica. There is widespread scientific consensus that greenhouse gases are affecting the climate of the Antarctic. 40 to 50 million years ago, temperatures were far warmer on the continent. Analysis of weather balloon data from the past 30 years has shown that the Antarctic atmosphere has warmed below 8 kilometres and cooled above this height. This pattern is the expected signature of an increase in greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide, that can be seen across the globe. However, the warming at 5 kilometres over the Antarctic during winter is over three times the global average. This means that even in parts of Antarctica where no warming has been observed at the surface, we are still seeing significant changes higher up. Thanks to John Law and Catherine Mags Maguire for appearing on the show. You've been listening to Ice World, a podcast on behalf of the British Antarctic Survey. If you want to learn more about the survey's work in Antarctica and beyond, please visit our website at www.bas.ac.uk. Thank you for listening.